9 to 12 to help Miss Charlotte, uh, that would be wonderful. If you're, here, if you're here for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, uh, we are, as a church, going through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And if you've been coming regularly, I hope you, you understand the introduction that we get just about every week. But there is, Paul is writing this letter to a group of churches in Galatia, who there are some Judaizers trying to come into the church who are attempting to tell the people faith in Jesus is important, but it's not enough. You must keep the Jewish laws in order to be right with God. In this letter so far, what we've gone through in the first three chapters, if I could summarize it, is Paul is trying to say that justification, and the word justification is a big word, don't let it scare you. It means you are in right standing with God because God has declared guilty sinners to be innocent. So you have a right standing with God, not of your own accord, but of God giving you this position. Justification does not come through one's good works in keeping the law, but through one's faith in Jesus, God's promised Messiah. Now, last week, we tried to get through the last 15 verses of chapter 3 and didn't quite make it. So I just want what I would love to do is, uh, is back up a little bit and uh, then jump right into these final couple verses and, and get, a, get into chapter uh, number 4 today. So if you have a Bible, and I'm going to kind of reference a few verses uh, as a group. We're not going to read through them again uh, because we've already gone through these. But in the first half of chapter 3, Paul's using Abraham, the father of the Jews, Moses, a hero of the Jews, and Jesus the Messiah of the Jews to, to make the case for what's behind me, this truth that justification does not come through works. In verses six through nine, he says, Abraham was justified. Abraham was made righteous with God by faith before works, even before the Jewish law even came. Then he references in verses 10 through 12 that Moses said, if you're gonna try to be right with God through your good works of the law, you better keep all of them. But since we all can't, we're under a curse because no one can keep all of the law. But then in verses 13 and 14, he comes and Paul says that the Christ, and remember, Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. Like King Charles, it's like Christ Jesus. Jesus the Christ, Messiah. He says that the Christ, the Messiah, uh, was sent by God to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. And he did this by becoming the curse in their place. And, and I want to emphasize verse 14 because it kind of brings that section to a close. And then Paul moves on. I just want to read it if I can together with you. He says, he redeemed us. Christ redeemed us in order, and this is real important as you read Galatians. That's why, why, why I want to just take the moment to, to go over this. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, and I'm sorry, we talked about the blessing given to Abraham. It was that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed because Abraham was chosen to bring the Messiah into the world through his line. That blessing might come to the Gentiles. The Gentiles is those outside of Abraham's line. And that's exactly who he's writing to. These Galatians were Gentiles. Hey, he redeemed us from the curse so we could receive the blessing and so we could receive the promise of the Spirit. And that promise of the Spirit is what Jesus spoke of before he went back to heaven. And Paul goes on and, I'm sorry, Paul goes on and explains that the promise, when God gave this promise to Abraham and then he delivered the law to Moses, it didn't mean that all of a sudden Abraham was justified by faith, but now you can be justified by works after the law. That's not, that's not at all what he was saying. 
God was saying people for all times will be made right by faith, which then Paul's going to address a question that's going to raise in people's minds. If the law, if the law didn't change how someone was made righteous, what did it do? Like if, if Abraham was made righteous for faith, then God delivers the law. And if I can keep the law, if I keep the law, but it still doesn't make me righteous, what does the law do? And so, again, we went through this last week, but Paul gives two answers. The first is that the law was to show people that they needed to be delivered. What good is it to send a deliverer if you don't know you need to be delivered? What good is it to know there's a Messiah if you don't feel like you need a Messiah? So the law was meant to show you, hey, you are not okay on your own. And every time a sacrifice was made, every time a cleansing ritual was taken, every time a Passover meal was eating, it was all saying we're not okay on our own. We must look for the one that God has promised. We need to be delivered. But Paul secondly said the law was meant to protect God's people until that deliverer appeared. Paul called it, we were there last week, Paul called the law a guardian, a schoolmaster, or a tutor. A pedagogue is what the word is, is in Greek. It's someone who a parent has given authority over their child. It's like a middleman. The parent gives authority to the pedagogue who rules over the child until that child can make decisions on its own. And it's free from that pedagogue. It's free from that servant because it is now mature in itself. And so the law was meant to protect Israel. So think of God the Father. Think of the Father giving the law to his children, Israel, until the deliverer appeared. Say, why in the world would the Jewish people need this law to protect them, to guard them? And, and here's what's so important to understand. We got to think of what civilization was like before the law. Think with me. Before Moses received the Ten Commandments and brought them down to the people, what was the world like? Genesis 1 and 2, a world in perfection. Genesis 3, sin comes. Genesis 6, Genesis 3 is when sin enters the world. By Genesis 6, it's writing, the author is writing that every intent and thought of humanity is only evil continually. You see how fast that happened? Genesis 8, a worldwide flood comes and God washes the earth clean from all of that evil and sin. But it's Genesis 11 where the people have turned in such rebellion again against God that they're building a tower after God said, disperse. And so God says, I've given the world the chance. The world cannot on its own live free from sin. They're going to continuously rebel against me. So God brings the law to his people to give them protection from the sinfulness of the world around them. You remember we said last week, the Old Testament, we're talking before the cross, those who lived before the cross, they were influenced from the outside in. This evil world was, was influencing them from the outside in, which is why God gave some really, really tough instructions that we read today when God says, go, go civilization, go wipe out that entire town. That's just crazy to us today, but God was protecting his people. But it all changed once the Messiah came. Once the Messiah came, that middleman, that law was no longer needing to 
guard them. See, that law needed to guard them until the Messiah was birthed through the Jewish people. And the law made it possible for them to continue to exist. The Messiah comes. Now the law can be removed, is what Paul is saying, as your guardian because he's here. But the law still works to point us to him as a deliverer. Now, on this side of the cross, we no longer are influenced from the outside in. Now we have received the Spirit, so we're influenced from the inside out. Which is why... In the Old Testament, they were commanded to wipe out civilizations that were heathen. But in the New Testament, we're commanded to go to the heathen with the transforming news of the gospel. Because we now have overcome the world through Jesus. And therefore, we go knowing greater is he who is in me than, greater, than, than he who is in the world. So I can go with confidence that Christ has already defeated the enemies. Of the world. And now the Holy Spirit works to bring conviction, to bring the expectation of God's holiness, and, and the Holy Spirit works to bring judgment on sin, which is exactly what the law did. But here's the cool thing for us as believers, this is really good news. When the Holy Spirit brings judgment for sin against us, it's different than what I think we sometimes think. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to us and convict us of sin to push us down, to make us feel guilty, to put this burden on our backs that you're not living up to what God desires. The Holy Spirit was given to us to remind us that the judgment for our sin was already taken care, care of. That's the freedom that the Holy Spirit brings when he brings judgment against sin. And it doesn't mean it's, we got to be very careful understanding this. We're not free from the consequences of our sin. In this earth, in this life, we will face consequences for our ungodly and wicked living. But we are free from the eternal judgment that we deserve, bless you, we deserve for our sin. Like, so that's, that's kind of the summary of where we are as we enter into these last four verses. And, and these last four verses, I love of Galatians. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them in chapter 3. But, it, but it basically what Paul's doing is he's saying, let me tell you, if you're in Christ, this is who you are. This is what you have. If you're in Christ, this is who you are not. This is what you do not have. So let me read verse 26 with you through verse 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, so I think Paul puts these four verses very simple. If you're in Christ, let me tell you who you are. You are a child of God. Ooh, that's good. You are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you are an heir of the promise that was given to Abraham. That's good news. That's really good news. And he says, that's who you are, but let me tell you who you're not. In Christ, you are not divided by your heritage because there's no longer Jew or Gentile in Christ. 
In Christ, you are not divided by economic class. It is neither slave nor free. You are not divided by social structures. It's no longer male or female. Anyone who has been placed in Christ has been clothed in Christ and now looks and represents Christ. So we're all the same. As I read that, I, I got to be honest with you. I'm studying that this, this past week, and, and like there was this tinge of like sadness. Because as we look back through the generations, even of Christianity, we don't see this. We can't go back and change the past. I fully understand that. And I don't even know that it's fair for us to look at what we do think today and try to judge people in the past on, on where we are today. But, but let, we also can't ignore the way the church has approached some of these divisions. There are churches that have a balcony that had their own entrance for slaves to enter through the back way and sit in the balcony while their owners sat on the main floor worshiping a God and reading a Bible that said every man was made in the image of God. There were people who used to look at other men and women as their property and, and, and they would hear a sermon that would talk about to love one another as Christ loved you. And again, I know we can't go back and change the past. I understand that. I'm not trying to. But I'm saying I, I think it's so important that we as a church recognize even what Paul was saying centuries ago. Look, in Christ, no, no we've got to lose visions. In Christ, everyone in here is is coming to on level ground and that ground is at the foot of the cross and so we can't look at anybody as if we're better than them he blows up the economic thoughts of slavery and, and freedom he, he touches on male and female which was a social structure and we all understand as we read the bible we understand the patriotistic uh, the way of of thinking that was the life then and Paul says, listen, in Christ, we're one. We have to understand that. Remember, uh, our family went to Dallas, Texas a couple of years ago. Of course, I wouldn't go to a game this year. Um, Cowboys are just terrible, uh, which I hope for you Redskins. Wait, sorry. Washington football team. Wait, sorry. Uh, commanders, you, you fans, I hope you, you're nice to us this year. Um, but... We went to uh, Dallas, Texas and went to the museum where John F. Kennedy had been, uh, th that's built right where he was, was killed. And I still remember one particular part of this museum that just really impacted me and, and has continued to. Uh, I was far away, probably about from where I am to the back wall right now. And, and it, was a, it was a picture of John F. Kennedy, probably not as large as ceiling to floor, but, but it's about 15 foot tall. And it was a really cool picture. But what I saw is the closer I got to it, the more I realized this was not a picture of John F. Kennedy. This was thousands upon thousands of different images put together of JFK that made one image of John F. Kennedy. It was really cool. That had him by himself. It had him as a child. It had him with friends. It had, it had all kinds of pictures. But, but from far away, as you looked at it, it just looked like JFK. 
And I remember thinking, well, that is, that is really a cool thing. But, but if you realize, that's, that's what we get to see when we think about the image of God. How, is, how are men and women of different races, different heritage, different social economics, male and female, how do we all come together to make one image? Uh, because that's the beauty of Christ. He has formed us, molded us, made us exactly who he wants us to be. And when we come together, what's seen is not us, what's seen is Christ. Man, and that's what Paul was trying to get the Galatian believers to understand. We're one in Christ. Let's go on to Galatians chapter 4, verse number 1. Paul's going to reference back to this guardianship of the Jews we read earlier. Verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So Paul's going to kind of jump backwards a little bit and pick up that idea. Remember where he said, now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And he's going to explain what he meant in chapter 3 when he said that. And he's basically good. Can you picture a king? Like we got, I mean, we have Queen Elizabeth's death uh, has been around us in the news. And so you're, we have just seen King Charles come. So, so think with me. So what Paul's saying in these couple of verses is, is when there's a king who has a child that is born, that child is one day going to own the whole estate. But now when he's born, and now when he's a little kid, no, there will be a time that the king or that, that, that the father will say it's time for him to step into the he was born. And that's what Paul's trying to do. The law was meant to guard Israel until this time that the Father had set in place. Well, what, what time is that? Let's keep reading verse 3. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So Paul now, now moves on and he says, so, so just as that king would have a pedagogue who would, would raise his child until that child was, was grown and no longer needed the pedagogue, that's exactly what the Jews were when they were underage. They were in slavery to the sin around them. But when the time came, when the set time came that the father, remember he referenced that earlier, that the father had decided God sent his son. So the law was guarding the people until the father sent the son. But these phrases in this verse four are very important. God sent his son. That's important because it shows the divinity of Jesus. Fully God. Born of a woman shows the humanity of Jesus. Fully man. Fully God, son of God. Fully human, born of a woman. Now, why does it not say born of a man? Do you all know? 
Because we're referencing back to Genesis 3, right? That promise that God said when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and he said it would be the seed of woman would one day crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He was the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3. That's why it's so important that it doesn't just say born of man and also because man never brings salvation. Only God does. Son of God, born of woman, born under the law. Now, why is that important? How could he free us from the law if he himself was never under the law. We know in Europe, Asia, Europe, there's a, there's a war going on right now. Russia has invaded the Ukraine. Could you imagine a world leader, and we'll just take President Biden for a moment. Could you imagine President Biden standing up behind the, uh, behind the, the Oval Office and say, I declare the war between Russia and Ukraine to be over. Well, you would say, you, you can't can't say that because you're not you're not involved in it you you haven't been a part of that so you can't say that it's it's over and what jesus does for us is the bible says that he redeemed us from the curse of the law so he came and was born under the law but he perfectly fulfilled the law so that he could then take the curse for us he perfectly fulfilled the law which put him in a wonderful position, actually the only position possible, where then he could now say, for those of you that have broken the law and you are under the curse of the law, I'll take that curse upon you because I'm not cursed. And, and while I take your curse, I'm going to give you my righteousness. This is what Jesus offers us. And then it says that we might receive adoption to sonship. Okay, this is so cool. Paul doesn't say so we could be sons and daughters. But we also know Paul isn't worried about gender because he just got done saying in Christ there's neither male nor female. So why does he say an adoption to sonship? Because what Paul is referencing here is the inheritance that fathers only pass on to sons. So think. When a, when a lady, when a, when a man's daughter gets married and he gives her away, she enters into the inheritance of her husband. But when a son, when a father looks at his son, he says, I will give my inheritance to you. Think of the, think of the, the parable Jesus uses of the prodigal son. He says, son, all that I have is yours. And this is exactly what Paul's referencing. He says God sent his son at the time appointed. His son was born of woman. He was born under the law. And he redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we could be adopted into sonship, meaning men or women, male or female, free or slave, Jew or Gentile, you are all eligible now to receive the inheritance of the Father. Man, that's good news. I remember years ago reading a story of a, of a young boy who was about 12 years old when he was adopted from an orphanage. And his parents brought him home and it was, he had been living in the home for a few weeks and, and the mom one day was making the bed and she found food stuffed between the bed rail and the mattress. 
And then as she was putting his clothes away, she found that his favorite toys were hidden under the clothes in these dresser drawers. And, and she called her husband and kind of explained what was going on. And boy, he, he began to weep and he said, they told us this was going to happen. That even though he was a son, even though we've brought him into the family, he was still going to live as if he was an orphan. Because that's how he had known to live his entire life. Hiding food that others, so others wouldn't take it because if you, if you didn't eat enough, you go hungry until the next meal. Hiding his favorite toys because if he left them out, others would take them. And so that dad came home and he, he brought that child that he had adopted and he said, son, and he walked him into the Anything and everything in this room is yours because it's you're a part of our family. They walked into the where he opened up the counters, the cabinets, and he said, all the food here is yours. You don't have to hide any food. You come whenever you want, and you can take. This is your food. They went outside and stood on the sidewalk and looked at the house. He said, everything in there I have bought, and because you're my son, it's yours. And that boy finally broke and began to realize, I don't have to live like an orphan anymore. I've been brought into a family. That's what God wants us to know. You don't have to live as if you have to take care of all your own things all the time. You have a loving father who owns everything. He says the cattle on a thousand hills, which, I mean, if you're a cattle farmer, great. If you're not, I don't know, that's... Showing I own everything, the wealth in every mind. It's all mine. Step back. You see this world? It's all mine. And now through Jesus, you have been adopted as my child, which means everything that is mine is now yours to inherit. So live as if you're a son of God, not as an orphan that has to take care of yourself. And then... In verse 6 and 7, we read this. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit. This is one of the inheritance promises. God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now let me stop right there. And I know that if you've been in church, you've heard this before. Abba, a term similar to daddy. Now people would say that, this, this beautiful term. I, I'll be honest with you, I've never called my dad daddy. So I didn't really resonate with that a whole lot. But if you do call your dad daddy, okay. This is what he's saying. You have an intimate relationship with your father. You don't have to say father. No. My daughter Trin, and I absolutely love the nickname that she has given me. She calls me Pops. Her phone, when I call, it rings Pops. Yesterday, she asked me to do something here while I was here before I came home. She said, hey, Pops, can you take care of this? I can't, I honestly, I cannot tell you how much it means to me for my daughter to have this special name for me. She doesn't call me Daddy but she doesn't call me father. Well, sometimes we do. We go father, daughter, uh, back. But father's my position in her life, but that doesn't reveal relationship. And here's what the Spirit is doing. Come here. Guess what? 
Because you are his son, come here. When you talk to the creator of the entire world, when you approach the throne of the one who rules everything, come here, come here. You get to call him Abba. Whatever nickname you want, you don't have to approach him. Oh, dear Father God in heaven, thou who rules above all things. Well, he does. That's his position. But no, you are his son, which means you have a relationship to enter into, and it's awesome. There's this, this theologian, his name is J.I. Packer. Man, he wrote something that I came across, and I was like, when I first read it, I was like, ooh, I don't know if I believe that. So be ready to think the same thing when I say this. He said, justification, which is being made right with God, is incredible. But I think adoption is even better. How, do you, how? How is anything better than the God that could hold me accountable for my sins, declaring me innocent? That's justification. But here's what he said. The doctrine of justification makes us right before God, the judge. But in the adoption, we are loved by God, the Father. Whew. So then I was like, well, I don't know. That does sound really good. I'm not sure how I feel about that. That's really, really good. And he went on to describe, he, he drew this picture. He said, imagine you're guilty before the, before the judge's bench and, and, and God is sitting on the bench and he knows that you're guilty, but he also knows that my son has paid the price. And because of your faith in my son, I can declare you a guilty sinner to be innocent. Chapoom. Pot that, that's not what a gavel sound a gavel makes, but he, he hits the gavel and you get to turn around and walk out of the courtroom innocent, woohoo, free of all charges. Yes, I should be guilty, but I've been declared innocent. That's justification. And then he says, but think about this. When he smashes the gavel down and you turn to, turn to walk, he says, hang on a second. He takes off his judge's robe. He steps down and he actually takes the key out that un undoes the shackles that you came in as a guilty person. And then he puts his arm around you and says, hey, I, I'm... And you go home with that judge and you realize this is the most loving man I have ever met in my life. And then he says, when you walk in the door, he says, by the way, I'm not just going to bring you into my home. You are going to be a part of our family. You're going to be my child. Which is better? Oh. He went on to say this. I'm going to read. It's a little bit long, but he said this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. For if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayer and his outlook, his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well. <laughs> so, Aaron, you led us in three awesome songs today.
I already knew this. Like, I knew I was going to say that. And it's like, if, if the thought of being God's child and he's my father does not prompt every part of me, including my worship and prayer, I must not be thinking rightly about Christianity. So I'm sitting over there thinking, hey, we're worshiping this God, but he's also my father, my Abba father. How awesome is that? When you realize that stand there and stare at a screen any longer. Oh, you fall on your face and you have tears that flow and arms are raised and voices are lifted and you're like, let's just keep singing. So how much do we make of the fact that God is our Father? I think we, we understand adoption or we think of adoption to be sort of what we see on the maybe the tv news or the media likes to play it up there's a sweet innocent child just just in need because there's no one to care for him and then there's this family of opens their arms wide and says we'll take you in let us help you that's not how our adoption went Are you kidding? Do, you, do you know what what titus well, what Paul wrote to Titus about who we were. We weren't sweet, innocent children just looking for a home. He says we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We passed our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. Okay. So, so picture this, you go, to the, you go to the adoption society and they don't bring you this sweet little kid. They bring you this 12-year-old boy who they say since he's three, he's been in severe counseling. He burns stuff all the time. We continuously find dead animals wherever he is. And if you check his past, there's a lot of murder and suicide. We can't handle this kid. Do you want him? And you'd be like, oh. Do, any, other, any other choices by chance? Is there, is there someone else to choose? Okay, okay, okay. That was the presentation given to God. Do you want this foolish, disobedient, passionate to his own sins, hating people and being hated by people? He lives in it. Do you want this kid to be yours? And our father said, oh, oh yeah, bring him to me because Paul goes on and says after all that he says when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in, uh, done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I got to skip back to, to that passage of Galatians 4. Look at verse 7. So now that you've been made a son, you're no longer a slave. Ha! You're not a slave to sin, and you're not a slave to the law. You're a child of God. And since you're his child, he has made you an heir. And don't think, please don't get stuck on thinking, yeah, that, we're, that means we got uh, a heavenly 
expansion and we got streets of gold and we have a gate of pearl. No, 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 that's, that's not the inheritance he's talking about. He's talking about the inheritance of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the inheritance of an eternal father. He's talking about, and please understand this, he's talking about you. The inheritance of an eternal family. You are a part of one another's inheritance. That means when you step in the back door, you have the choice to either say, I'm just going to sit here and not talk to anybody. And you understand, no, no, no. You need to talk to that person because you're their inheritance. Don't you, don't you leave and just slip right out. No, God brought you into this family because this family is a part of the inheritance we have all received. So get to know one another. Step into the lives of one another. Give, care, love one another. I, I love, I, I met with Mike and Leslie Morrison before the, uh, today about membership. And, and one of the things she said is, I've never felt so loved in coming to this church. And she said specifically, Jerrica Owens and Sharon have made her feel loved. I'm like, that's, that's what the family does. That that would mean you ladies, you didn't even know it, but you are part of her inheritance. But so are we. I guess you want me to finish up, Trent, huh? Man, deacon chairman starts there and says, your time's running out. Appreciate that. Guess we know what he thinks of being a child of God. All right. So what do we do with those, those verses? Well, we live as a child of God we are. You're not a slave to sin, so don't sin. You're not a slave to the law, so don't live as if you have to perform righteous deeds to be in God's good stead. You are his child. So what do, how do I live then? If I don't live like a sinner and I don't live like according to the law, we live like Jesus. Did you ever see Jesus worried? He was led by the Spirit to speak to whomever his father brought him in contact with. Jesus was never in a hurry. He went to lepers. He went to people who were mourning. He went to wedding feast celebrations. He would stop and talk to someone on the side of the road because he was led by the Spirit. That's what our inheritance is. So let's live like the child of children of God we are. And love all of God's family with Christ's love. Don't look at someone else as if you deserved it more than they do. No, I don't care who the sinner is when they walk in the back door. You are just as deserving of hell as they are. In Christ, we're all one. So let's love one another like that. So when people are hurtful and hateful, you know what we do? We love them like Christ. Yeah, but you don't know what they said. If we're gonna love like Christ, do we even go there? Because what they said put him right there for us and approach God as your loving father. Oh, we'll close with a worship song. As we close, 
You're singing, yes, to the God that created the world. Yes, to the God who holds the scales of justice in his hand. Yes, to the God who is in sovereign control of all things, great or small, visible and invisible. Yeah, that's who we're singing to. But you know who that God says he is to you? Dad. Come on. Come right up close. Let's talk. What do you need? Could help you today? Would you pray with me?